Rich is a scholar in residence at Jews for Jesus. We're going through the book of Esther. We've gone through chapter 4. We're not quite finished yet. And so my intent was to have Rich come closer to Purim, which is, I believe, on the 24th next month. But Rich is not available, and he was only available this Sunday. So here he is. And so we're going to have Rich share with us because Purim is part of this time, the celebration of what happened between Haman and the Jews. And so asking Rich to share with us. He's going to have more information for you about Jews for Jesus. There's a lot of literature out in the foyer for us to look at and to learn about. But Rich, we welcome you. Good morning. Shalom, as we say in Hebrew. Well, shalom is actually the Hebrew way to greet people, so I'm going to try this from the top. I'm going to say shalom, and you will all say the same word back to me. So I'll say shalom, and you'll say shalom, which means, you know what it means, peace. It also means hello and goodbye. It's a great greeting to use this morning, really bringing you some peace from the Lord. Delightful to be with you all here at Regeneration Church, and thanks for Albert and Steve for inviting Jews for Jesus in this morning. I'll tell you more later about the Jews for Jesus ministry, but you know, we are missionaries. We're out there to bring the gospel to our Jewish people around the country, around the world. And if you know something about Jewish people, you know that we are raised to say no to Jesus. We're basically raised to believe that he can't be the Savior, he can't be the Messiah. And, you know, it takes God's working in a Jewish person's life and heart for them to come to faith in Jesus. And the way you really get to see this, you know, we are a very public ministry. So one thing that we do a lot of is we hand out a lot of literature in public places. And when I've done this, I've gotten responses from Jewish people. Like sometimes they'll say, you should be ashamed of yourself for believing in Jesus. Or I used to get this one a lot. Does your mother know you're doing this? You know, you can tell from those sorts of responses, Jewish people are not rushing into the churches to hear the gospel preached. So we have to go out to where they are. And good things are happening, and I'll share more with you later about that. But part of what we do maybe is encapsulated a little bit in the uh, book that you've started to go through here at Regeneration, and that is the book of Esther. Great story from the Old Testament that has a lot of significance for us as Christians today. So before you can ask what does Esther, uh, the book of Esther, what does it mean for us as Christians here today, you have to kind of know something of the story. And I know you've gone through about four chapters of this already. But let's kind of review and kind of get an overview of the story of the book of Esther. So if we can go to the next slide. First of all, chapter 1. This is the King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. This is his first wife that's talked about, Vashti, who bears a strange resemblance to Queen Elizabeth. And she was deposed because she did something that didn't really please the king. And she was replaced by the lovely Queen Esther, who um, basically was chosen. We call it a beauty pageant, but it was really a lot more than that. It was really kind of just six months of all these preparations and coming before the king just to see which one he liked best. Not very um, elevating for women, actually. 
But she was chosen to be the king. Turns out she's Jewish. Turns out, even though she was named Esther, she had a Hebrew name also called Hadassah. And she became the new queen in chapter 1. Meanwhile, chapter 2. Intrigue. Two eunuchs in the king's palace end up plotting against him. Oh, they really look like plotters, don't they? Oh, yes, yes, they're plotters. And... Fortunately, Esther had an uncle named Mordecai who uncovered the plot. <laughs> it's just so weird how Mordecai looks so much like Ted Danson. He's one of those coincidences. But he uncovered the plot and basically saved the life of King Ahasuerus. Good story so far. <laughs> Meantime, in chapter 3... Haman, who bears a strange resemblance to the Green Goblin, is um, given some honors by the king, an official in the court of King Ahasuerus. And then problems develop, because as we see on the next slide, Haman wanted everybody to bow down to him, but Mordecai would not bow down to him at all. He would not show Haman any honors. And so... Haman plotted to kill Mordecai and the Jewish people, plotted genocide, and he was an evil guy. Okay, so now we move on to the next one, brings us to chapter 4 on the next slide. And here, Esther and her cousin Mordecai, they get together, they talk, what are we going to do? Haman's plotting the destruction of the Jewish people, where are we going to take this? And... Mordecai ends up encouraging Esther to go and see the king. And she's like, I can't go see the king. You just can't walk in and see the king. Nobody can do that. He could kill me. And the only way that her life would be spared is on the next slide if the king raised his golden scepter and said, okay, now you can come on in. But in probably the most famous verses in the book of Esther, Mordecai says to Esther, you know what? Good question. Who knows if... You have come to the kingdom for a time like this. And if you don't act, help for the Jews will arise from another place. And that's how chapter 4 ends on this kind of note of uh, suspense. Meanwhile, we move on to chapter 5. Now, I don't think you've gotten here yet, but the next slide. There is a banquet that Esther is preparing to invite the king to. And meanwhile... The king wants to honor Mordecai. And so on the next slide, we see, however, that Haman engages in the art of self-promotion and just keeps talking about himself and how wonderful he is and how he's the person the king wants to honor. All kinds of things are going to happen. And he continues his plots. Not only does he promote himself, but on the next slide we see that he builds a gallows that he's going to hang Haman on. Evil guy, evil guy. Next slide. Okay, the king is having trouble sleeping. He's got insomnia. And uh, yeah, he's tried all those over-the-counter remedies. Nothing happens, nothing happens. You see how wide awake he is. He can't go to sleep. It's terrible. And so what happens is he has a bedtime story read to him. Next slide. 
He has the Chronicles of the King brought into him to read, which, um, you know, if, if you read historical chronicles that go year by year, day by day, it's probably enough to put you to sleep too. But in this case, he gets read the story of the two eunuchs who plotted against his life and how Mordecai was the one who actually ended up saving the king from death. So the king decides, I have to honor Mordecai, and he brings out a robe, and he brings out a horse, and he honors Mordecai, puts him on the horse, dresses him in the robe, all kinds of honors go to Mordecai. Now, the next slide, chapter 7 now. Can't see it too well, but that's a banquet. It's actually now the second of two banquets. And here is where Esther finally gets to speak to the king and says, you know what? Haman is plotting to kill my people. And Mordecai, planning to kill Mordecai also. Well, the king already knows the story of Mordecai, how he saved his life. So he goes and he commands that Haman be hung on the gallows. And so he is. Haman meets his death on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The plot thickens. Chapter 8. Next slide. Well, unfortunately, the king had already put in an order, Haman's original desire for the Jewish people to be killed, and the law of the land, once you do it, you can't revoke it. But he says, I can do something else. I'm going to give the Jewish people permission to act in self-defense, and whoever rises up against them to try and kill the Jewish people, they can act in self-defense and defend themselves and stave off the genocide. And that's exactly what happened. The Jewish people were able to save themselves, and in kind of a sweet moment of divine uh, justice, the ten sons of Haman were hung also, and they were killed. And as a result... What do we have? We have a holiday called Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the Jewish people from their enemies. Purim means lots, like if you're casting lots, because Haman had decided the day the Jewish people were going to be killed by casting lots. So it's called lots, but it sounds nicer in Hebrew, Purim, you know. Sounds nicer to say we're celebrating Purim than we're celebrating lots. So we celebrate Purim. And finally, the last chapter is kind of a postscript how Mordecai just continued to receive honors in the kingdom and that kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's an amazingly dramatic story. It is a curious story because God is not mentioned even once. And it seems that, you know, Mordecai and Esther, they don't seem like they're very religious Jewish people either. They're really very secular. You know, they don't use their Hebrew names. Esther doesn't call herself Hadassah. She calls herself Esther, which is like a Persian name after some Persian god. And it's really different than most other books of the Bible that way. God's just not mentioned. Maybe there's a hint when Mordecai says to Esther, if you don't act now, help will arise from another place. But God isn't mentioned. We're going to come back to this. But now, on the next slide, 
Now, I just got to tell you a little bit about how this is celebrated today, because it's still celebrated by the Jewish people. Like Albert said, it's going to actually fall this year on March 24th, a little late, because it's right this year. It's a few days before Easter. But what happens today if you were to join a Purim celebration? The next slide will show us. First of all, you read from the Bible. You read from a special scroll that contains the book of Esther called the Megillah. That means the scroll. And um, I don't know why, but there's a tradition. I guess because it's such a happy holiday and it's a fun holiday, you're supposed to read this as fast as you possibly can. I don't know why. So if you want to be traditional, Albert, you can get through the entire book of Purim next week, all in one week, and just get through it super quick. But you read from the scroll of the book of Esther. And also, okay, here's the thing. This is a noisemaker called a grogger. And when you read the book of Esther, whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, you go, yay! And whenever Haman's name is mentioned, you wave the noisemaker, and it's really annoying sound. And you go, boo! Quite a noisy type of Bible reading, you know, because you think of how many times Haman and Mordecai are mentioned, right? And not only do you do all of that, but it's customary to have a Purim play where you dress up as all the characters and you act out the whole story, and it really lends itself to that kind of a thing. Sometimes they even call it, on the next slide, a Purim masquerade party that people hold, and it's a lot of fun. And what's a Jewish holiday without food, right? So the next slide, we've got some delicious Purim food called hamantaschen, which means Haman's pockets. Who knew he even had pockets? But it's also called Haman's Hat, and it's three-sided kind of pastry with all these good kinds of fillings, apricot filling or poppy seed or whatever. And you eat this, and as you can tell, it's just a real joyful holiday. You're celebrating God's deliverance. And the next slide, you send gift baskets, some people do, to your neighbors or to your family. And uh, it's just a real happy celebration. Well. It's great to celebrate and to be happy, but then, of course, the question is, on the next slide, we ask the question, so what? I mean, the Bible's got a great story. It's a celebration today, but what does it mean for us? What can we get out of it? Why is it in the Bible? What's the point of it? A couple of points, I think. First of all, on the next slide, it's a story about how God is sovereign. Basically, that means he's in charge. He knows what's happening. Nothing is, you know, out of his purview. He's the one who's really plotting out the story of our lives, of the lives of God's people. Because even though Mordecai and Esther didn't really seem like they were religious Jews, they seemed very secular, even though God isn't even mentioned in this book, we have to understand that behind the scenes, God was working out all of these events ahead of time. There's no coincidences with God. You know, Esther has to talk to the king. She ends up getting to talk to the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear this plot by the two eunuchs of the king to kill him. The king just happens to have the chronicles read to him and finds the story of Mordecai saving his life. And one thing after another, God is orchestrating all of this behind the scenes I think this is a real lesson for us here today because I don't know about you, but when I look back on my life, I see this happening, okay? I grew up in New York City, where we still say coffee, and 
I grew up in a Reformed Jewish home. That's the liberal wing of Judaism. My family was not very religious, like Mordecai and Esther, you know. God was not really a big, big thing in my house at all. And one day, my dad opened up one of the closets. He gave me a book about, I guess you would call him like a New Age guy or a psychic or something named Edgar Cayce. Not a lot of people know about Edgar Cayce now, but he was kind of big back when I was growing up. And I really began to get really fascinated in this guy by reading the book. Now, you would think that would be just the wrong way to go to find the Lord, the wrong direction. But I just started to read this book and got totally fascinated by Edgar Cayce. And it turns out, supposedly, he would go into these trances. And in these trances, people who were sick would come to him. And he would give a very weird diagnosis and a very weird cure that they should follow. And supposedly, all that worked. Supposedly, it all worked. Well, it turns out Edgar Cayce said some things about Jesus. Now, here's the first way God was kind of working through what seems like just an average coincidence. If someone had walked up to me out of regeneration back then and said, you need to believe in Jesus, I would have said, no way, I'm Jewish, we don't do that, it's not for us. But no one ever said that I couldn't follow a new age Jesus. And so I got interested in Jesus through Edgar Cayce, and I believed everything this guy said. I think he said the lost continent of Atlantis was going to rise in 1968. And when it never rose, I figured it really did rise, only nobody knew it yet. Because yeah. I was really sold on him. He said if you ate three almonds a day, you wouldn't get cancer. I seem to remember that. I believed that. And so when he said about Jesus being the way to God, I believed that also. But it was Jesus very far from what we see in the Bible. All right, next coincidence. I'm off in college. I'm exploring all kinds of spiritual paths. I'm really looking for God, because I was raised without God, but I was looking for him, and I tried everything. I bought a book called 500 Ways People Can Grow. It started with astrology. It went all the way to Zen Buddhism, and I'm making my way through the book, and I get to the letter Y for yoga, and I say, ah, I'm going to try yoga. Yoga is the way maybe to plug into God, and I tried to twist myself into all these positions that the book showed me, and I couldn't twist into any of them. And then I was afraid salvation was only for flexible people. <laughs> Very unsettling. And ran into a Christian on my campus who actually shared the gospel with me. And you see, I was already open to the gospel at this point because the door had opened through this new age version of Jesus. And so I was ready to talk about anything spiritual and eventually... We talked about what the gospel meant, the biblical gospel. We argued for nine months, and eventually I came to faith in Jesus, like the end of my second year in college. But if it hadn't been for Edgar Cayce, I probably would not have been open to the gospel at that point. So you see, I see God working behind the scenes in my life in a very strange way, because normally you would never say, hey, introduce someone to New Age stuff first, and that'll lead them to the Lord. But for me, that's how God worked. And it's because he was in charge of my story, my life story, like he's in charge of your life story. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing throws him. He is at work behind the scenes to do his goodwill in your life if you're here today as a Christian. A great illustration of this, I read a book some years ago called The Tapestry. You ever go to a museum? You ever see like one of these big tapestries on the wall you know, they're like from the 14th century or whatever, and they're all cloth. 
and it makes a picture on the front side of the tapestry, but if you look at the tapestry on the reverse, it's a complete jumble of threads. It doesn't make any sense at all. And this writer compared our lives to that tapestry. From our vantage point sometimes, it seems like just a mass of threads going in all different directions, chaos, doesn't make sense. We have a political candidate out there who says that doesn't make sense, but it doesn't to us. But then you turn it over and you see it from God's point of view and you see it from how we'll finally understand it when we're with him in glory. And it's a picture. And all that chaos from God's side of the picture makes sense finally. I'm sure to Mordecai and Esther, life seemed rather chaotic. There's a guy plotting to kill the Jews. I can't go into the king. I might die. There's other people plotting the king's life. There's this evil man, Haman. And it just seemed like chaos and like a mass of threads. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Esther, boy, you see how it all comes together. And you have to understand God was the one who was behind all the things that happened to preserve the Jewish people and to bring the story to a great ending. That's the first thing for us. Never forget, God paints that tapestry of our life. He's in control. We also learn that he's a faithful God. Now, go to the slide after this as well. There's a promise back in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, that has to do with Abraham and the Jewish people. Before he was called Abraham, he was Abram. Now, we think of Abraham in the Bible associated with, you know, the land of Israel. But before he came there, he was way off in Mesopotamia, kind of like where Syria or uh, modern-day Iraq would be. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and go from your kindred and go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Check this out. This was a promise God made to Abraham, number one, to bring the Jewish people into existence. The descendants of Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. And through the Jewish people, God was going to bless all the nations of the earth. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus came through the line of the Jewish people. And the blessing that God said he was going to bring to the world through Abraham and through the Jewish people, you might think if you have a Jewish doctor, maybe that's the blessing. And a lot of Jewish doctors out there. But the blessing is much more than that. It was the promise to bring the Savior of all of humanity, Jew or Gentile, through the line of the Jewish people. And Jesus came through that very line. Now notice something. What if the Jewish people had been wiped out in the days of Mordecai and Esther? Humanly speaking, there would have been no Jewish people for Jesus to come from. And God would have broken his promise to Abraham. But God promised that I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In other places, he promises to always preserve the Jewish people. So God was faithful to his promise, and as a result of his faithfulness, 
We are all here today as brothers and sisters, whether we're Jewish, whether we're not Jewish, because God kept his promise. And the book of Esther shows us in a very dramatic way through all these amazing obstacles that come up that God is able and capable of keeping his word, preserving his people, and bringing the savior of the world to come. Bible, if you read, it's full of obstacles whenever God makes a promise. It's like God is just trying to show us how powerful he is and how much in charge he is. I mean, after God promised that a son would be born to Abraham, then in Genesis 22, he commanded Abraham to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his son, the one that the promise was going to be fulfilled through. Abraham obeyed, and you know what happened? God provided a ram as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. These obstacles always come up, and in our lives as well, but, you know, let's remember that God is faithful. If he could preserve an entire people from a murderous villain, he can preserve us in our lives. God is faithful. And I think we've got another slide here. Well, yeah, salvation, because people say, well, do you see Jesus in the book of Esther at all? Well, you know what? Yeah, you see that God is in charge of all things and overcomes every obstacle. Even at the time that Jesus was born, King Herod commanded that all the boys under two years old be killed so he could destroy Jesus. But you see how God had worked that out in the Gospels that Jesus was spared from that murder and God kept him to be our savior. I think this is the double message, or at least two messages of Esther. God's in charge, he's sovereign, and God is faithful. And because he's in charge, and because he's faithful, we're all here today as believers in Jesus and taking part in that blessing together. Isn't that a great message that God has for us in the book of Esther. I just want to finish up by sharing with you something about the Jews for Jesus ministry because, you know, we believe that God continues to preserve the Jewish people and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, though we're preserved physically, most of us today don't believe in Jesus. About half of 1% of Jewish people are believers in Jesus or to use his Hebrew name, Yeshua. And that's why we exist as a ministry. Our mission statement is to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. So we've got branches in like about 26 cities around the world, about 14 countries. And exciting things are happening. Let me tell you, even though we are raised to say no to Jesus, Jewish people more and more and more are opening up to the gospel, willing to have conversations, and are coming to faith in him. I told you about myself, and there are many other stories like that. I'll let you know something that you can be praying for in our ministry, but let me just share this for a second. I think I mentioned before, we're probably best known for being very bold and visible and vocal. We go out onto the streets, we go to the campuses, we go downtown areas, we hand out literature, we've been experimenting with 
post-it boards where we ask a question, someone posts an answer, and we can converse with them. We're giving out cold-brewed coffee that leads to conversations. I mean, we're going to try anything and everything, a lot on social media. And we're very encouraged. One of the um, places where things are really happening right now is Israel. It's our largest branch. Israel has as many Jewish people now as there are in North America, about 5 million five and a half million, and it's growing. The Jewish population in Israel is growing. So we go there. We are engaging the population of Jews in Israel. And, you know, we go out, we have evangelism campaigns. We'll go out for like two weeks or a month for handing out literature, having banners on the highways where people can call in a number, phoning people up, getting onto Facebook and other social media sites. And the Israelis are very secular Jews. They're like Mordecai. They're like Esther in Israel today. The religious Jews are a minority. Most Israelis are secular. They're searching. They feel a lot of tension because you never know when some war is going to break out. Very open to the gospel. I'm going to invite you to actually pray for our Israel branch. You receive this card with your bulletin. Would you take it up? And there's a dotted line on the card. Bend it towards yourself on the dotted line. Bend it away from yourself. And on the count of three, we'll tear it all together. One, two, three. Ooh, yeah. So the small part of the card is a prayer reminder to bring home. Pray for our branch in Israel. We are planning to conduct 12 evangelism campaigns in 12 different parts of the country. And we've got a few more of these campaigns yet to go. So many Israelis who want to talk with us. Pray for our work in Israel, please. The large part of the card allows you to get our newsletter and to keep in touch with us or to get our email communications. You can fill in your name, your address, the other information there. And if you do that, we'll send you 200 Jews for Jesus every month. That's right, 200. It's about as many missionaries as we have. But we'll send you our monthly newsletter, looks like what I'm holding up, to let you know what you can pray for, to encourage you how to witness to Jewish friends, to help you learn more about the Bible from a Jewish point of view. And we would be really privileged for you to let us communicate to you in that way. So you can fill out the card to do that. So then also on the way out, I think there are special boxes going to be set up. If you want to either drop the card into those to get our newsletter, or if you want to give it an offering gift to Jews for Jesus, you can also put that in those boxes that will be set up by the door. You want a receipt for any gifts, you can fill in the amount on the front. I think you can even give by a credit card on this card if you want to do it that way. With or without a donation, you can still fill this out, drop it into the boxes, and we'd be encouraged for you to be part of our Jews for Jesus family and to be standing with us in prayer. Last thing, we've got a literature table outside of the sanctuary. Some free things, some things that are available for purchase. If you want to know more about like some other Jewish holidays, we've got books on that from a Christian point of view. And I wrote this one a little while ago called Christ in the Sabbath, showing how Jesus is the one who gives us rest and he fulfills the Sabbath. And finally, we've got a CD called Heart Cities by one of our staff people, Giselle, young woman, fascinating background. She's half Samoan and half Jewish. 
How's that for a combination? The rumor is that uh, when the Jews married into the Samoans, they all had to leave Easter Island and move to Passover Island. But that's another story. Anyway, let's keep in mind the book of Esther and its meaning for us. It's been a joy to be with you here today. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Albert, it looks like. Thanks, Rich. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Rich and the ministry of Jews for Jesus. We ask God for your blessing upon them. Thank you for just his insight and what he's shared with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.